Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 173. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Pallavi Katamasu. And today, Pallavi, you have a really interesting topic that I'm eager to get into. So when I was about eight, I saw an image in the Louvre that gave me nightmares for around a year and a half. I didn't know what it was depicting. I just imagined this gore and torture. It wasn't until three or four years later that I realized that it was actually a crucifixion scene. I think it's been a long enough time where I can look at this from a distance and think about it more critically instead of imagining it and getting reoccurring nightmares from imagining it. I think it's fascinating that for a lot of kids in America, the crucifixion isn't a traumatizing image. It's very normal. It's something that they grew up with. I was wondering how these so-called universal images become so normalized to us so quickly. I think it's a really wise subject to broach, and for me it's particularly interesting because I was raised Catholic, and so the image of Christ on the cross is familiar to me, and not one that I've ever thought too deeply about. I'm aware of how Christ was crucified, and I'd also like to say before we go further to the listeners that this is not a theological discussion. And I personally don't know everything about Christ's crucifixion, nor what the crucifix represents in various denominations of Christianity. And I would welcome any corrections or input from the audience, but this is not intended to be a theological exposition of what Christ on the cross means. Though I did, in my research, come across a lot of rhetoric talking about the crucifixion as a political statement by the Romans, And that's what really intrigued me in thinking more about this, because the symbol of the cross was meant to deeply humiliate the victim who was crucified, because the Romans were also practicing other forms of execution that included strangling and stoning and boiling. But crucifixion in particular stripped a person both literally and figuratively, and the pain that they experienced leading to asphyxiation or hypoglycemic shock were a fraction of the social pain, if you will. And so I think it's really interesting that this symbol persists, obviously because of its religious significance, but it is in certain ways a reminder that the politics of ancient societies and civilizations do persist in a sense. And I also think this symbol is so interesting in its persistence because for the Romans, this act was an attempt to humiliate the, quote, king of the Jews, But for Christians, the interpretation is far different and subverts that idea in what I would say is a really profound way, because Christ was helpless in his suffering, but suffered for humanity as an act of redemption. And so I think the symbol hanging in many churches and elsewhere today represents two things simultaneously, both a human being humiliated, shamed, and brutally attacked in an unspeakable way, but simultaneously a symbol of redeeming vulnerability and the ultimate sacrifice. And I really love that duality, and I think to answer your earliest question, that's one of the reasons that the symbol persists and that many of us might not question it or view it with the brutality that the Roman Empire intended. And to me, that's a really profound statement about the human ability to shift narratives that none of us can deny what Jesus experienced, and yet thousands of years later, we don't fixate so much on the pain of the crucifixion, but rather how Christ was able to transform that pain. Of course, all of this in a Christian narrative, with which some listeners may disagree, 
But I think that differentiation of interpretation is what really allows the symbol to survive because we can interpret it in a variety of ways. And so I'm also intrigued that your initial interpretation as a young child was of the horrific pain this individual was experiencing. The use of the crucifixion as a political statement for the Romans is actually embedded in our language. I remember reading the etymology for pagan once, and if you trace it back far enough, its meaning is civilian, which implies that Christian means militant. What's powerful to me is that the allegory that the crucifixion created for people of faith, this symbol of redemption, is more fixed in our narrative than the political statements that the Romans tried to create. And like you said, I'm also no expert in Christian faith. But if the crucifixion was an image used to conjure fear, then I think it says something about humanity that we're able to create something beautiful out of it, even though it took me a little longer than people of the Christian faith. Even though I was initially afraid of the crucifixion scene, it intrigued me to research and learn more about biblical traditions. And I've come to the conclusion that the literature it breeds and the art that it breeds is far more beautiful than the seeds of fear that were planted in the beginning. Do you remember the first time that you saw the crucifixion scene? I actually can't recall when I first saw it, but I don't remember having any strong emotional response to it. And I think because in a lot of church settings, at least those I've been in, the crucifixion, though present and visible, often in a central location above the altar, doesn't depict the blood, gore, or brutality of the event so much as it does Christ in a very vulnerable position. And I think that's what I identified. And I've also been really intrigued, since you brought up the topic, to think about the bodily position of Christ or anyone on the cross, because I feel like making one's body larger is often something we associate with strength. People are told if you ever encounter a wild animal like a bear, you may stand a greater chance if you literally puff yourself up and try to take up more space to intimidate the creature in front of you. And obviously, Christ's role in crucifixion was not to intimidate, but I think it's so interesting that similar bodily positions of spreading one's arms can represent, with slight variations, vulnerability or strength in a sense. And I don't think it's inconceivable to connect Christ's bodily position to that of a bird, something capable of flight, which extends its limbs in a very similar way. And certainly there may not be a practical or realistic connection between those or other ideas, but artistically, because the crucifix does represent a religious, and in your case at the Louvre, an artistic statement, I do think it's worth considering the symbolism that is literally present in that bodily posture. So you mentioned how Christ's posture in the crucifixion scene could either depict vulnerability and strength, and I think an umbrella term that encompasses both characteristics would be openness. And maybe fear was the first thing that triggered me to think critically about Christ, but I've been trying to search for openness within my own religious narrative for quite some time. My parents raised me Hindu, and they would tell me prayers in a language that I didn't understand, and I would repeat them, and they would tell me to think about the deities. I would imagine a vast blue open sky and try so hard to imagine the deities open themselves to me in that sky. But I would really just, in my head, recreate images like statues, never like humans. In fact, the only time that I ever saw them in motion was in my nightmares. 
I remember learning a prayer for Hanuman, which is known as the monkey god. And once I went to sleep, I would imagine him coming into my room and growing big and strong, just as you said, but breaking through the house. And I was scared. In his openness and vastness and greatness, I became much more small. I'm not sure why fear is my initial reaction when it comes to religious figures, but I'm grateful. I've been able to use this fear to think more critically about these icons, like Jesus and Hanuman, so I can understand how to empathize with their narrative as an individual. Because the narratives that I've been exposed to where Jesus is on a cross and Hanuman is a great big monkey, they frighten me. So I've needed to reconstruct them for myself. And I think the real reason that I'm so grateful is because these religious narratives that I've twisted in my head to make it so that I'm not afraid, they're what make me a better storyteller. I'm glad you bring up storytelling there because to me, religious tradition and storytelling tradition have persisted in humanity because they share a great number of qualities. And I think it's valuable that there are so many interpretations between and among religions because people pick up on different elements in different stories and religious traditions. And I'm so interested that fear has been an initial response for you in some of these religious narratives that you've been exposed to, especially because coming back to the idea of openness, I do think that's a great word to describe Jesus's posture, both literally with the crucifix, but also emotionally and socially during his life, because Jesus preached an openness and a love towards others. And I think that's why the crucifix is such an interesting symbol, because he's also depicted in various states of undress, in certain crucifixes as entirely naked, and in others with a loincloth of sorts. But I think where many of us in a modern context associate nudity with something sexual or impure, I do think in many cases where the Romans intended it to represent his absolute base level of humanity, I do think in the Christian sense, Jesus's exposure to the elements and of course to the gaze of the crowd also represents his openness to people around him. And I think that's why the religious symbolism there is very intriguing. And coming back to your nod on storytelling, throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about imagery that can absolutely conjure fear depending on your narrative, but that I think many of us have recontextualized. For example, the photograph of the individual standing in front of the tanks at Tiananmen Square and depending on how you'd like to interpret it, there's a great deal of fear there where you anticipate his next moments in life being incredibly painful and representing perhaps a hopelessness. But I think many of us look at that image and see someone who was courageous and chose to stand up for principles, for a nation, and various other political and personal beliefs. And to look at an American example, there are various images from protests and marches during the civil rights era in which African Americans were beaten and treated terribly. And for some, I'm sure those images did and still do conjure fear. And I think that that's really prevalent and powerful. But I look at many of those images today, as I'm sure do other Americans, and think about the courage and bravery employed by those individuals who were marching and protesting to fight for a better world. And I think images are so crucial in our interpretation of narrative. In fact, to pull back the curtain a little bit on this episode, we're recording just a few weeks after the events at Charlottesville. And of course, the national discussion about monuments depicting Confederate soldiers or generals. 
And I think those monuments have sparked some discussion about the power of imagery, which I think many of us would agree is great. And to be historically accurate, it's very important to note that many of those statues were erected during times of racial unrest in America. And to link it back to the civil rights movement, many of these monuments were put up in direct protest and statement against the civil rights movement. What's intriguing to me is that Jesus on the crucifix is such a powerful image for so many people. And like you said, he's at his base humanity. He has nothing but a rag on, he's stretched out on a cross, and he's starving and thirsty. There's such a juxtaposition between that and the images that are meant to be powerful in my religious narrative. The deities that I'm accustomed to are covered in gold and silk, and they dance and eat good food and are always in a state of pleasure. Of course, the narrative of my deities traces back much further than the narrative of Jesus. So I wonder if this duality of an image that evokes both fear and hope is a shift in the human subconsciousness, where we're able to process multiple things, multiple levels of emotion, and we're able to create that and recreate that in an image. And just like I'm not a Christian expert, I'm also no Hindu expert, so perhaps there is an image in Hinduism that evokes the same sort of duality that the crucifixion does. But what really resonates with me is, Kip, you isolated these events like Tank Man, like the protesters in Charlottesville and the civil rights movement, these images that evoke both fear and hope. And within our conversation, we can trace that back to the crucifixion scene. So there's this pattern of powerful images that are meant to do two things, at least, inspire, but also intimidate. And in that statement, what's powerful to me is that though they're evolving, we're still creating these images. And like you said, these Confederate monuments, which are in the process of coming down, just as communist monuments in Eastern Europe came down, these political statements that are meant to only intimidate are transient. We've latched onto this duality of fear and hope, and that's something that's become part of our collective narrative. I'm really intrigued with the Confederate monument example that you bring up intimidation, because I think it comes back to this idea that symbols, imagery, and monuments evoke power, but that power is often interpreted in different ways. For you as a child, the crucifix was a powerful vessel of fearful emotions. And I think for other people who are either more mature or have a different relationship to that same image, it's still powerful, but represents hope and sacrifice and emotions that are not quite similar to fear. And similarly, although I personally have very negative feelings towards those Confederate monuments, I've seen video after video of individuals defending their existence and speaking about what they represent in terms of Southern culture or a certain heritage or historical connection. And there's certainly a longer conversation about American history as it relates to the South and the Confederacy. But I do think for those individuals, many of them don't look at intimidation and don't see the same iconography or ideas and symbolism that you and I might, which to me, though at times saddening and a cause of conflict, speaks to the diversity of human interpretation of identical images. And I think that's worth thinking about further. And so on that note, before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to our discussion? Think about the first time that you saw an image that you're so normalized to now. For me, it's the crucifixion, and my first memory of it is fear. How did you feel when you first saw that image? 
Similarly, I would encourage the audience to try and think about symbols or icons that you see regularly in your life. I know there are probably logos or other images that I see frequently, but don't consider in a critical way. And I think many of us have normalized relationships to those symbols, not necessarily in an unhealthy way, but one that I think deserves reconsideration because we change where often these icons do not, and we may have newer or different interpretations than we did when we were first introduced to these images that often populate our lives. And I'd also really love to hear from listeners who are both religious and not particularly religious what your relationships are to the crucifix, especially in cases where maybe you and your family have discussed it and have had different interpretations, or you were introduced to the image by a certain figure or leader in your community. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. If you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, we'd really love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter or on Facebook, you can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider supporting us on Patreon, where we offer perks like bonus episodes, and also sharing the show with someone you think might really enjoy it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Pallavi Katamasu. Think twice or more.